It's an ancient story. A story of history. A story that talks about two great warriors. Cyrus and Cagular. Cyrus, of course, was the noted emperor of Persia. And Cagular, he was a little-known chieftain who uh, consistently was able to repel Cyrus's attacks. Cagular's troops tore the Persian army apart time and time again as they resisted Cyrus's attempts to expand the southern border. Finally, Cyrus amassed his whole army and he surrounded Cagular, captured him, and brought him to the capital for trial and for execution. On the day of the trial, Cagular and his family were brought to the judgment chamber. The chieftain, who was six feet tall, which was tall for people in that day, with the appearance of a nobleman, faced the throne. The story is told that Cyrus was actually impressed with Cagular. What would you do if I spared your life? Cyrus asked. Your majesty, replied Cagular. I would return home and I would remain your obedient servant as long as I lived. What would you do if I spared the life of your wife? Cyrus questioned. Your Majesty, if you spared the life of my wife, I would die for you. So moved was Cyrus by the answer that Cagular gave him that he appointed Cyrus and his wife as the chieftain uh, actually to govern the southern province. And on the trip home, Cagular, in excitement, began to ask his wife, did you notice the marble entrance to the palace? Did you see the corridor in the throne room? Did you see the chair that he was sitting on? It was just one lump of solid gold. His wife appreciated her husband's excitement, but she admitted, I I really didn't notice any of that. Well, Kegular asked in amazement, what did you see? And she looked seriously into his eyes. I beheld only the face of the man who said that he would die for me. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel that John wrote, he tells a story of love. It's a story of another man who actually did die for me and for you. It's a story of the triumphal entry, that very first Palm Sunday. And John chapter 12 verse 19 says, 
when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. The large crowd that John refers to, it would have been made up of pilgrims who went to Jerusalem for the greatest of the three feasts that every Jewish male was required to attend. They were there for the Passover. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus describes one Passover just before the Jewish war of 66 to 70 AD. He says, estimates, that 2.7 million people took part of that Passover in Jerusalem that year. Now that counts the defiled, the foreigners who were present in the city but weren't able to go in and worship. But 2.7 million people. Now even if those numbers are inflated, we know that the crowds were enormous in Jerusalem for Passover up to the destruction of the temple. And I think the assumption of this verse... And the next is that Jesus was met on the road from Bethany by pilgrims who had already reached Jerusalem and who went out to meet Him because they heard He was approaching. Many of those pilgrims would have been Galileans who were familiar with His ministry. Many others, it says, had heard about the raising of Lazarus, which John writes about in John chapter 11. Either way, they eagerly sought an opportunity to see Jesus. John continues his story in verse 12, once again making reference to the large crowd. And it's a story of which we're familiar. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John admits his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Can you imagine the excitement that was building? I mean, even though He was sitting on a donkey's colt, which actually meant He was a king coming in peace, even though He wasn't riding a great white stallion, which they wanted to see. I mean, the Messiah who was going to come and pardon my colloquialism, but kick butt and take names. And that's what we often want ourselves. They were waving palm branches. Palm branches which symbolized victory. And as Cindy shared, peace. And they were boldly crying out, Hosanna! 
Which means save us. Literally, it means give salvation now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king. Did you see that? Did you read that? Even the king of Israel. Now let me tell you, if you don't understand what was going on in that day and age in the first century, that is dangerous behavior. That's explosive language. That's revolutionary stuff. That's the kind of talk that would get someone killed. And it did just that just a few days later. But there's one more story that John includes at this point. It's a unique story not found in any of the other Gospels. It's found in John chapter 12 still, verse 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What has Jesus been saying all the way from the beginning of the Gospel? All the way back at that first miracle of the changing of the water into the wine when He said to His mother, My hour has not come. All through John's Gospel, Jesus continues to say, The hour has not come. The time is not right. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor Him. Some Greeks. Greek of nationality. But not necessarily Greek-speaking Jews, although that was common in that time. Probably not. But Gentiles who had come to worship in Jerusalem for the Passover. And the descriptive detail that went that they went up to worship uh, implies that they came in the same route Jesus did through Jericho and through Bethany. And so probably, we don't know, but probably saw the triumphal entry. And the Galilean source of these Greeks seems to be confirmed to me by John's careful explanation that they attempted to contact Jesus through Philip and Andrew, who were also both Galileans, though they were Jewish. But the original readers of John's Gospel would have recognized right away that these two are the only two disciples of Jesus who had Greek names. Philip means horse aficionado. 
It was a noble military name. In fact, it was the famous name of the father of Alexander the Great. And Andrew, it means masculine one, courageous one. And it's probable that Philip and Andrew had embraced the Greek ways. They had become Hellenized, including both their clothing and their dress. I mean, think about it. Let's let's move forward a little bit. The trial. And Peter's out there in the courtyard. Luke says that one of the people, just before Peter denied for the third time, one of the people said, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They looked different. Although they were Jewish. And their request, it was quite simple. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If you come into my office someday, those words are on a little wooden plaque that is right in front of my computer. It was a wooden plaque that my father also had in front of him And he had those words taped right on the light of his pulpit everywhere he he preached. We want to see Jesus. Uh, We want to know about Jesus. We want to interview Jesus. It wasn't just see with the eyes. Their language is more precise. They wanted the chance to meet this one who had been hailed as the Messiah, the new king. And why they should ask Jesus is really not clear. But their curiosity may have been stirred by no more than the buzz of conversation all around them. Or, listen, if a couple of days had passed between verse 19 and 20, which is very probable, then it's very possible that the cleansing of the temple had taken place, which is described in Mark 11, in which Mark tells us Jesus drove out the traders and their merchandise and insisted that the temple was a house of prayer for all nations. All ethnic groups. And if this report of Jesus' words reached the ears of these Greeks, they may have been drawn to a religious leader who seemed to question the forbidding of the Gentiles to enter the temple proper. The inferior status of the Gentiles according to the Jews before God. Or, as I've already said, they may have come from the Decapolis and therefore had been somewhat familiar with Jesus' teaching since most of his work was done in Galilee and around Galilee. But whatever, whatever the dynamics, these Gentiles approach Philip saying that they want to see Jesus which can be understood as somebody that wants to know more about what this guy is all about. And strictly speaking, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He doesn't directly respond to the request. But to the situation that their request represents. You see, at the very moment that the Jewish authorities are trying most violently against Him, 
Some Gentiles are seeking earnestly and clamoring for his attention. They want to see this one who has been spoken of as the Son of God. The man we know of as God incarnate. God in the flesh. Not God the Father, but God the Son. Which actually brings us to our text for today. Now, the context for my sermon continues to be John chapter 4, verse 12. In which John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides and lives with us. And I shared that with you last week. The idea that not only does God abide and live in us, but we live in Him. And then John goes on in that verse 12 and he says, And His love is perfected in us. Which is going to be what we examine this morning as we complete the fourth chapter, verses 17 to 21, by means of a sermon that I have simply titled, Perfect Love. And John, John, nor am I, Suggesting that in our life, our love for God is going to be flawlessly perfect. But rather, our love should be developing, maturing, being made complete. So let's look at our text, verses 16 to 21. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also Love his brother. Just as Philip and Andrew were exhibiting marks that identified them as Galileans and therefore possibly disciples of Jesus, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are two marks of perfect love that are found in these verses that we just read that you and I as believers as disciples, as followers of Jesus, should also be exhibiting. And the first marker, the first identifying characteristic, has to do with our confidence. It's a word that John has already used to portray both the unshrinking confidence that we should have at Christ's coming, back in chapter 2, verse 28, and the bold assurance that we should enjoy as we approach God in prayer, which we looked at in chapter 3. Here, though, 
John reverts to the day of judgment, which is going to follow the Lord's return. And what he says is that our confidence, like our obedience, back in chapter 2, our confidence is a sign that our love has been made complete. That, that's the Greek word that's used there, by the way. It's a form of the word telos. Telescope. Something that shows us the complete, the whole. So what's translated perfect or perfected is all about maturity and completeness. It's grounded upon the fact that in this world, John says, we are like Him. Remember what he wrote? As I stressed it when I was reading, by the way. I mean, let me confess. When I read the text on Sunday mornings, I'm usually going to emphasize with my tone or pausing something that I'm going to be coming back to. John said, as He is so also are we in this world. Now to be sure, we're not like Him yet. Not in our character or in our bodies. In fact, back in chapter 3, John said what we will be has not yet appeared. Although to some extent, we should be beginning to resemble Him more and more every day in our conduct as we mature in the faith. Back in chapter 2, verse 6, he said we should be walking in the same way in which he walked. In chapter 3, he said everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, should be purifying himself as he is pure. I remember my daddy one time saying, one of the saddest things that I ever experienced is people who go to school all their life and never graduate to be teachers. And the guy he was talking to said, what are you talking about? Because the school system kind of makes sure that everybody graduates, or at least tries to, and not everybody's encouraged to be teachers. Oh, no, he said, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Sunday school. We have people go to Sunday school all their life and they never get to the point where they feel like they know enough to be teachers. We should be maturing. We should be growing in our knowledge and our understanding. But you know what? In our standing before God, even while we remain in this world, we're already like Him. We are His children. We have His image stamped within us. We are set told that we are sanctified if we follow Him and believe Him and loyally try to do what He commands. Now what's that mean? It means that in God's eyes, because of what Christ has done, He sees us as holy. He doesn't see our mistakes. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done when we're willing to obediently follow Him. We're His children, begotten, born of God, as He was, which He'll say next couple weeks from now in chapter 5. We're the object of God's love and favor, which Cindy read in Ephesians chapter 1. 
Therefore, if Jesus called and calls God Father, so may we. We can share the confidence before God which Jesus employs. And in verses 17 and 18, we're talking about what Archie Edwards identified as love's perfection in relationship to ourselves. It allows us to have boldness on the day of judgment. But then in verse 18, the same basic truth is now stated negatively. The love that spells confidence banishes fear. There's no fear in love. Isn't that what Paul wrote? 1 Corinthians 13. There's no fear. And the two, love of God and fear, they're as incompatible as water and oil. You put oil in a jar of water and shake it real vigorously, real hard, and you might not see the oil for a fraction of a second. But then what happens? It starts coming back together and goes right to the top. Because they're incompatible. We can love and reverence God simultaneously. But we cannot approach God in love and hide from Him in fear at the same time. I always had a sense of fear in, the, in terms of awe, in terms of respect for my father. Most of the time I wasn't afraid of him. But every once in a while when I did something that I shouldn't have done, my mom had a way of saying about six or seven words that struck fear all the way to the core of my being. You wait till your father gets home. But you know what? We don't have to have that fear with God. No. That brings me, by the way, to my second point. What I see is the second marker that you and I should have as Christians in terms of our, our love being perfected is just that. It's the idea that our great characteristic is not that we fear, but that we love. I know that almost every one of you can complete this. And they will know you are Christians by your love. We sang it as a song. We're one in the Spirit. We're one in the Lord. Our unity, it won't be destroyed. Why? Because they'll know we are Christians by our love. And the reason why we love is because God first loved us. That's what John said. God's love was primary. In fact, all true love is a response to that initiative. And John repeats that truth that he's asserted already back in verse 10 over and over. 
You see, fear lives in us by nature. Or at least most of us. I have to be honest. I don't know any other way to be and sometimes it causes me problems, but I am more afraid. I have more anxiety. I have more fear when I stand behind this pulpit sharing with you than I do at any other time in my life. I've stared down guys with guns. The only thing they can do is give me my reward that much sooner. Let me be with Jesus. My characteristic should not be fear. It should be love. And the reason that is that that God loved me. Fear lives in me by nature and needs to be driven out. But love, the agape love, which is by the way the word John uses every time in this passage is agape. They had five words for love. They had agape, they had phileo, they had storge, they had eros, and they had one other that isn't even used in the Bible and wasn't used very commonly and used so little that I've forgotten it. But you can go read C.S. Lewis's book because he has it in his five, five words for love. But John uses agape, God-like love. Now I just shared this week with two different people the fact that we have to do agape love. Because a lot of times we don't have a lot of phileo in us for people that act like fools. Phileo is brotherly love. And sometimes it's just really hard to love some of those people. And we just have to sit back and we have to remind ourselves. We might even have to verbally say to ourselves, Self, this person was created by God. They were made in God's image. They have His image stamped within them. They might not be acting right. They are a sinner. But we are to love sinners. We're to hate the sin. And it might not be easy to do that love. But we're called to do it. To love even our enemies. To love even the ones that are trying to persecute us. I had that situation come up years ago. Someone did their best to do me in. And not long after that, they were in need. And my wife said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Because I am here to represent God's love. And so in verse 20, our very capacity to love whether the object of our love be God or our neighbor, which is due entirely to His prior love for us and in us. In verse 20, John begins to focus on our profession of that love. 
Love for God expresses itself not only in a confident attitude toward Him, devoid of fear, but in loving concern for our brothers and our sisters. The perfected, completed love that drives out fear should be driving out hatred also. And if God's love for us is made complete, when we love one another, as He said back in verse 12, so is our love for God made complete. John doesn't mince his words. I've shared this with you before. If how a person behaves contradicts with what he says, he's a liar. That's what John says. And I don't mind saying it too, since he said it. To claim to know God and have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness of disobedience is a lie. I I shouldn't have said it. I know I shouldn't have. I've tried to smooth things. But not long ago when somebody said, "I I need you to pray for my friend, knowing that that person was an atheist, I said to him, who do you want me to pray to? Who do you want me to pray to? You don't believe there's a God. Somebody came into this office within the last two weeks and was talking about how God was doing this and God was doing that. And I said, when was the last time you worshipped with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, what do you mean? Well, Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. It's a command, an imperative. And John says, if you don't obey God's commands, you don't even know God. Now, that's not easy for me to say because I have close family members who make no attempt to worship God at all. And I can't believe, according to what his Bible says, that I'm going to spend eternity with them in heaven. What promise is there of them being saved when they have nothing to do with the bride of Christ? I'm telling you right now, if you didn't have anything to do with my wife, I wouldn't want to have much to do with you. Why do we think that Christ is going to want people that don't want anything to do with His wife to be a part of heaven? I don't care what reason they give. To claim to possess the Father while denying the deity of the Son is a lie. There are a lot of people in this world that believe in God, but they don't believe Jesus is the divine Son of God. John says that's a lie. To claim to love God while we hate other people is a lie. You cannot love God whom you haven't seen if you cannot love your neighbor who you do see. That's what John said. And these are the three lies of this letter of John. The moral lie, the doctrinal lie, and the social lie. Just I've been calling those the three tests. And the wrong answer to the three tests are the three lies. We can insist that we're Christian, but habitual sin, denial of Christ, or selfish hatred expose us as liars. Only holiness, faith, and love can prove the truth of our claim to know, possess, and love God. 
We're studying the Sermon on the Mount right now on Wednesday nights. And this Wednesday night, we will come to chapter 7. And twice, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, twice in in chapter 7, Jesus points out that you can identify false prophets and true prophets by the kind of fruit that they're producing. And John 15, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 8, as Jesus is giving His disciples their final instructions in the upper room, He says to them, By this is My Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. Not that you sit around all day and say, Oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Oh yeah, I believe that God is the Creator and uh, no, it's it's bearing fruit. That's what proves your disciple. I mean, I know I beat this horse over and over again, but James says even the demons believe there's one God and shudder in fear. It's not what we believe in our heads that saves us. It's that plus what we do with our lives. John says that it's ludicrous for a person to say he loves God. And... The word he uses there is and hates the one that's continually in front of our eyes. Because you're going to have ample opportunity to serve them if you see them and see what they're doing. And if you hate them and you're not doing those good things, then you really don't have love for God. Now listen to me. It's easy to deceive ourselves. But the truth is pretty plain. Every claim to love God is a delusion if it's not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, and even those who have tried to persecute us, our enemies. And so in verse 21, he returns to the proof of love to help us with our certainty. You see, the folly of the liar's position is seen not only in its inherent inconsistency, but in the fact that love for God and love for our brother and sister actually form one command. Jesus Himself taught this. In fact, it was none other than Jesus who brought these together for the first time as far as we know. Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18 Love for God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and love for your neighbor. And Jesus said what? The second is like unto the first. It's just like it. And then Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hang on that very truth. Loving God and loving our neighbors. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not going to be in a position where I want to separate what Jesus is doing together like that. And if we love God, we're expected. No, we're not expected. We're commanded to keep His commandments. And His command is to love. So, let me bring this to a conclusion. In what we have as the final verse of this chapter, John makes one further appeal for loving. And it's a reminder that I think is needed. We're living in a world burdened with a pandemic. No, I'm not talking about COVID-19. 
the pandemic that is tearing this world apart, that's even dividing families, is the pandemic of hate. And evidently it was also needed for these Christians in John's time. Or he wouldn't be emphasizing it the way he is. No, there's too many Christians who don't properly regard each other in the body and regard others who are outside. It was while I was in college. I think Andre Crouch and the disciples actually came to Lincoln. Um, They disbanded as a group in 1976, which was after I graduated. It might have been that first year after I graduated down in Kentucky, but I think it was at Lincoln that I saw Andre Crouch and the disciples. And I remember how the Word spoke to me because I think once we realize that love that God has for us, the love that our Savior and Lord had, how He commanded us to have that same love, even love for the Samaritans of our day? Today's Palm Sunday. And you know what? On Palm Sunday, on the first Palm Sunday around 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey knowing that He was riding into His death. Knew it. No question. He told the disciples several times in the weeks before that, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be murdered, killed. He rode into that situation to proclaim a message of the coming peace as the Savior of the world. Just five days later, five days later probably many that were in that crowd saying save us were now saying crucify him and he would carry the crossbar of a cross out of the city to die as the savior of the world so that you and I would have both eternal life in the future and abundant life in the here and now That, my friends, is love. And the words of the song are pretty simple. I don't know why Jesus loves me. I don't know why He cares. I don't know why He sacrificed His life. Oh, but I'm glad. So glad He did. He left His mighty throne in glory to bring to us redemption's story. He died and He rose again just for you and me. Oh, and I'm glad. So glad He did. Where would I be if Jesus didn't love me? Where would I be if Jesus didn't care? Where would I be if He hadn't sacrificed His life? Oh, but I'm glad. So glad He did. And that's the question that I want to leave with you today. Just 
How glad are you that Jesus loves you and sacrificed His love for you, His life for you? Because if you really do believe that God loves you, and you really do appreciate Jesus' love for you, you're not going to leave these doors today and do nothing. You're going to leave these doors and show love perfected because of what Christ did. Let's pray.